Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 1st, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Here Comes the Nins Again. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Ravi Garg. He is a neurologist in the Department of Neurology, Division of Neurocritical Care at La Jolla University in Chicago. Welcome to the SGM, Ravi. Thanks for having me, Ken. Well, you know, I am really excited that you are on the program because one of the criticisms, and I think it's a reasonable criticism to some degree, is that emergency physicians who have done post-publication review of the stroke literature, like my friends, Dr. Justin Morgenstern, Dr. Ryan Radecki, Dr. Anand Swami Nathan, and Dr. Salim Razai, is we're not neurologists, and specifically, we're not stroke neurologists. So that is true. We are not. But we are part of the team that does diagnose and treat acute stroke patients. So, Ravi, do you think that some non-stroke neurologists are capable of reading and critically appraising the stroke literature? Well, I think the first thing I would say is I'm not sure I fully agree that that's a reasonable uh, criticism. Um, met- this is really about methodology. And I think no matter what your background or content expertise is, um, methodology is quite something different than that. And um, in fact, you'll find that some of the best critical appraisals come from, quote, outsiders. Um, I don't think you and I are outsiders, but um, if you really, really wanted to figure this out, I think it would really take a truly an outsider. I would just comment that also this idea that uh, neurologists aren't skeptical of thrombolytics for stroke is seemingly not true. Um, I think Roger Shinton, Shinton and uh, Peter Apelros would be notable examples of that where they've written really nice skeptical articles and methodology-based articles about the thrombolytics for stroke uh, literature in general. Well, the SGM tries to include a wide variety of clinicians in this knowledge translation project. Great emergency care takes a team from the pre-hospital setting into the emergency department, the inpatient setting, and the outpatient setting, everyone working together on team patient. That's why we've had paramedics, nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists, and a wide spectrum of physician specialists on the SGM. However, Not until now have we had a neurologist on the SGEM who has a specialized interest in stroke neurology and published on thrombolysis to be a guest skeptic. Up until now, we've had a neurology resident as a guest skeptic on the show. So very happy to have you on the SGEM, Ravi. Again, yeah, thanks for having me as well, Ken. Well, you sent me a paper uh, that we're going to be discussing today after seeing some of the Twitter threads that mentioned the NINS trial. Yeah, I actually had just finished um, two papers in, that included the NINS study, and uh, I opened up Twitter, and it was all about NINS, and I said, what a what a coincidence. So um, I saw some of your responses, and I thought you might be interested in some of the results that at least uh, we came up with regarding the NINS study. Well, before we get into the nerdy weeds of this, can you give a shout out to your co-author on this publication? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty doubtful that Stefan's going to be listening to this, but um, thanks to him. And uh, if you're really interested in this topic, his paper with Vance Berger on third order selection bias, I think is a, is a definite must read. Wait, wait a minute. You don't think Stefan is a, a listener of the SGMY? 
I'll ask him. I just, I'm, I'm pretty doubtful um, from my email correspondence with him that he's somebody who's going to listen to this podcast. All right. Well, um, the NINS trial was published way back in 1995, 27 years ago. And we did a structured critical appraisal of that classic paper with Dr. Anand Swami Nathan on SGM number 70. Where were you, Ravi, in your career when the NINS trial was published? I was a resident at the time of publication. Well, uh, I was eight years old, and that fully explains why I'm kind of late to this party. Is um, I, I was not even sure if I was going to make it to high school, I think, at that point. <laughs> oh, you're making me feel old. So did you, did you at least have the Playmobil doctor set? I had a lot of doctor, doctor games. You know, my dad's a neurologist, um, so I had a lot of those games growing up. But, you know, I, I had n- no idea about NINs for sure. Oh, so you're a legacy. You're second-generation neurologist. Yeah, my dad was a neurologist out in the community. And um, later on in my career, he's the one who got me kind of interested in this topic. Um, I would say a lot of community neurologists especially have a lot of skepticism uh, in, in rural areas especially. Wow, if I had known that, I would have seen if your dad could have been on the show and given us that really historic, long look at this issue of stroke, because the world really pivoted, you know, after NINS was published. Uh, before that, there there wasn't really a lot that could be done outside of really good stroke rehabilitation, and I don't want to minimize that, but boy, things did change after NINS. It would have been interesting to have invited him on the show. I'll let him know. I don't know what he's going to say, but I'm happy to let him know. (laughs) Well, maybe he could listen and give us some feedback. Yeah, definitely. All right. So do you have any general thoughts about that 1995 NINS trial? Well, I think the, the most important aspect of the trial was regarding randomization. And uh, they use a method called stratified block randomization, um, which has two components to it, the stratified portion and the, the permuted block portion. And all that really means is that the randomization schedule is divided up, typically on an important prognostic variable. So I think the best and the easy ex- example to understand this is in the Australian streptokinase study, they actually um, stratified randomization by stroke severity. And so the idea would be at the end of the study, you know, there isn't a huge imbalance in small strokes compared to very large strokes. So an important point there is that doesn't mean necessarily that there's equal number of participants between strata, but within each strata, um, there should be an equal number of participants in each of the the two arms of the study. And the way that it it can be um, done is using this permuted block system. So the whole life cycle and the whole point of using permuted blocks is to force, and I would add cosmetically force, um, an equal number of participants in each of the groups. There's some other important points. Uh, One of them is that, and this I think gets greatly overlooked, is because the NINS is often cited as being a two-part study or two separate parts. But from a randomization perspective, that's not true. And the, the product licensing application was pretty clear about this, that randomization was continuous and uninterrupted between the parts. And they actually have even an example where there was a blocks that was at a center and it was shared between the two parts. And that's important when we think about randomization, because if you're going to look at things like allocation balance and covariate balance, it would be incorrect to only look at one part. You would be looking at a, you know, a truncated randomized sample, um, similar to a subgroup, actually. And then you have some additional truncations that the investigators put on randomization. And there's two 
two important ones. One of them, you know, understandably, the investigators thought that there was going to be more eligible patients in the 91 to 180 minute arm compared to the zero to 90 minute arm. And so they put a rule at each center that if there was greater than or equal to three participants in the 91 to 180 minute stratum, they would have to start refusing otherwise eligible participants from the other stratum. And so that's very important because you have a situation where eligible participants are being excluded by investigators. And the second truncation was regarding the CT scan criteria, uh, which is really not present at all in the original study if you read it, but it is present in the, in the licensing application that if there was a mismatch between what the investigator felt was the time of onset based on the CT scan compared to what the patient or family reported, the investigator had the option to go back and re-question them. And that sounds actually very practical, right? So if you think of a situation where somebody says, hey, I was last no normal 15 minutes ago, and there's a large hypodensity on the CT scan that's very dark, you can say that's probably inaccurate. But that creates a situation where there's a subjective exclusion criteria. And even if there, that criteria differed between investigators, you again have a situation where eligible participants could be excluded from the study. And, and so it creates a, two opportunities, rather, for kind of this thing called discretional allocation. And, and that would be a worry from a randomization standpoint. And at the end of this, you have a situation where um, 16,009 participants were screened and only 3.9% were enrolled. We typically only think of that being a problem with external validity. But as I previously mentioned, um, these truncations on randomization that could exclude otherwise eligible participants could also be a problem with randomization as well. Well, one of the concerns about the NINS trial were baseline differences of the NIHSS score. This resulted in multiple reanalyses attempting to control for these factors. NINS actually commissioned an independent committee to investigate if any of these imbalances invalidated the entire trial. This committee's findings supported the use of TPA in less than three hours last seen well. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing is the premise of the reanalysis. So the premise of these reanalysis is you have a situation where randomization leads to um, chance imbalances. And in order to adjust for this residual confounding, there's the use of inferential statistics. So that's the premise, and I think that's the most important thing about these reanalyses. I have some, you know, other methodological concerns with each of the individual reanalyses. For the Ingalls ones that you just mentioned, principally the use of an automated variable selection procedure. So if you think about wanting to adjust for residual confounding, the, an automated variable selection procedure means that they are only using statistical analyses to, to determine which variables go into the model and which ones are left out of the model. That's a real big problem, and I can give a really easy example uh, to understand that. So say you conduct randomization, and you pick a variable that you know is not associated with the outcome. But by chance, that variable is greatly different between the groups. Let's just use Red Sox, for example. You finish randomization, and there's 75% more participants with Red Sox in the TPA arm compared to the uh, control arm. Using this automated variable selection procedure, that variable gets included into the model that adjusts for residual confounding. And that's a real big problem. Um, I think you need to have uh, a biological basis for including models. 
And then in our case, um, specifically, we looked at it from the, the lens of randomization errors, and that would be a big difference. Well, there was that 2004 Ingalls reanalysis, which we uh, just mentioned and you talked about there. But there was another reanalysis done one year later that also confirmed the baseline imbalances of NINs and said that they did not account for the better outcomes seen in the TPA-treated patients. Any brief comments about that 2005 reanalysis? Yeah, similar kind of concerns with the Ingalls reanalysis. Specifically, one, the premise is that randomization is conducted properly and then you also, you see no justification for what variables they're including within their model to, quote, adjust for residual confounding. I would just add that um, in, in these, some of these reanalyses, uh, they use blood pressure, which was found to be corrupted not only in the Ingalls reanalysis, but in our data set as well. There's lots of missing values. There's repeating values, which is a big red flag when you're talking about randomized data, which should have a nice normal distribution. And there's another thing with this global statistic, which was a primary endpoint in the NIN study is that that's really a statistical composite endpoint based on what's called the generalizing estimating equation. And so first of all, clinically, that absolutely has no meaning. And you'll find that after NINs, it's never really used as a primary endpoint again. But the more practical point is that you really can't determine um, the meaning of that without knowing what the individual endpoints are that make up that composite. And so none of that data is available in the one uh, the the one in the annals that you just mentioned. Okay, so those those two reanalyses, they had a priori decided that the randomization process was appropriate or complete or worked. Is that correct? Yeah, by definition, um, that, that's the assumption that's made because if you start believing or you have evidence that randomization has failed. Um, and I feel quite strongly about this, and I think many biostatisticians would have my back on this, is that you can't simply reanalyze the data and say we've overcome randomization errors. That would be the same thing as adjusting for residual confounding from observational data sets. You know, we would have the same degree of confidence. I would add that if somebody figures out how to overcome this problem and obviate the need for randomization, I mean, this person should be winning the Nobel Prize because you've suddenly determined a method for us to use that no longer requires to do this, you know, this randomization procedure. Well, after those two reanalyses were published, along came Hoffman and Schreiger, and they really stirred things up a bit with their graphic reanalysis of the NINS trial using the NIHSS score. They published their findings in Annals of Emergency Medicine, 2009. The results questioned the effect of TPA for acute ischemic stroke in patients treated within three hours. The graphs created in their publication also failed to support the time is brain hypothesis. There were some criticisms of this graphic reanalysis. What are your thoughts on this contrarian view? Well, I think the first important difference compared to the at least the, the previous ones that we had mentioned is there's no inferential statistics here. So this is just exploratory data analysis based on box plots and, and scatter plots. Um, the second point regarding the time is brain hypothesis, I would just emphasize that that was also not found by the Ingalls reanalysis as well as by the original authors. So that's actually a misnomer that that's something new that has not been previously described. The, the premise of the paper is really that you have a baseline difference in means in the NIH stroke scale score. And we want to know if that baseline difference is in means is meaningfully different at the, the follow-up period, which is 90 days. Anything graphically 
um, it's quite convincing that there's not. There's really no change in the change of the NIH stroke scale score. And so if you think about that, it creates this problem where you're going to say, well, if there's no change in the NIH stroke scale scores, which is a measure of neurological function, how is it that we're explaining such a large change in the disability endpoints? And kind of the earlier responses to this were that while there is this mismatch because disability measures one thing and the neurological examination based on the NIH stroke scale measures something completely differently, but we can definitively say that that's not supported now. And we have tons of data from mechanical thrombectomy that show a very nice congruence between these two. And actually, if you were to pick, you know, what's the largest treatment effect size that we can find in mechanical thrombectomy, it's actually in the NIH stroke scale score. So there is that mismatch now that really is unexplained as to how there's no difference in the change in the NIH stroke scale score as per Hoffman and Traeger. But then you you have some ways to, to ex- you need some way to explain this difference in, in morbidity scales. Um, I certainly have some hypotheses why I think missing outcomes is is one of them, but that's the that's the premise of the paper. Well, Saver and his colleagues responded to Hoffman and Schreiger's graphic reanalysis in Academic Emergency Medicine 2010, and they pointed out a number of concerns with that publication. Uh, I'm wondering, did Saver and colleagues make some sound arguments? Well, the principal argument that's made in that editorial is that the NIH stroke scale is ordinal. First of all, if you look at pretty much every single thrombolytic study except for the international stroke the international stroke trial, the third one, the variables displayed as a mean or a median, which including in the NIN study by the way, it's a median, which is of course a measure of central dispersion. So, you know, I only wonder if that author would say that all these other authors have displayed the variable incorrectly. And the point I think he's trying to make, though, is that a change from 31 to 21 is not clinically the same as, you know, 11 to 1 is the example he uses. And there's two, you know, more important points there. One of them is that numerically they actually are the same, meaning a change point-wise is the same. And you could say, for example, that all variables are ordinal using that argument. So say you compared, you know, temperature to sepsis outcomes. Are we now going to say that because there's huge differences at the top and the bottom end of the scale, that uh, temperature, for example, is an ordinal variable? I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think there's a more important point there is that you shouldn't consider an arbitrary change the same without considering the baseline score, right? That's the point. It's not the nature of the variable changes, but you can't just say that four points for everybody is the same. That's different than saying there's a mean difference. I would just add that uh, in the appendix of the, the Hoffman paper, the same graphs are there ordinated, by the way. So he does the exact same analyses with the graphs ordinated. I would just also add that that's the specific author that wrote this editorial in future publications uh, also adjusts for the NIH stroke seal continuously. A great example is the Hermes meta-analysis, um, in which one of the endpoints is indeed a mean difference in the NIH drug scale score. So I, I have a hard time grasping this idea that it's, quote, a deviation from best practice in 2009, but then not in you know 2016. Seems like a little bit of a mismatch to me. Well, that's enough talking about other people's work. I wanted to bring you on the SGM to talk about your new publication. So the title of your paper is Risk of Selection Bias Assessment in the NINS-TPA Stroke Study, 
and it was published in BMC Medical Research Methodology, June 2022. With all the other reanalyses, what motivated you to do another reanalysis of the NINS trial? Well, I want to first emphasize that the premise was not really a reanalysis, at least the way the term has been used previously. I was more interested in what I described as being the premise of the other reanalyses. That is, you know, if you, for example, did um, 20 hypothesis tests after randomization and randomization was perfect, you would expect one chance difference. What I was more interested in is the alternative point of view, meaning are we can we assume that these differences are due to chance or is there evidence from the trial data that this was more likely due to randomization error? And I alluded to this before, the conclusions and the analysis you're able to do from the two is, is markedly different. If it's due to chance, you know, you could argue all day about the best methods to adjust for residual confounding. If it's due to error, however, Again, I would strongly disagree with this idea that you can somehow overcome uh, randomization error at the, at the analysis phase. So you're trying to tease out the difference between, you know, randomization process can result in some lumpy data. And so you can get these imbalances. And so were those imbalances that have been identified in the NINS trial, were they due to just chance randomization or were they due to an error of the randomization process. Am I getting that correct? That's correct. It's, it's very important. Yeah, that, that's correct. Because again, those are so different, even though the end result is the same um, from an analytical standpoint. We want to know, is it due to chance, like a coin flip, or is it due to actual error in randomization? And if there is randomization error, you take it that next step and say, is this consistent with selection bias or not? Well, randomized control trials, RCTs, it's the first letter, R. And so you've got to figure out, did the R work? Like, did the randomization, were there errors in the process of randomization? But we'll get into that, okay? Were you able to get patient-level data for this review? And if you were, why is that important? I was able to get the patient-level data, and... It's so important because you you really can't figure this out by looking at what's already been reported for sure. Um, I think a great example of that is the Alper uh, ECAS-3 reanalysis in which there's, I mean, mountains of data in there that's important that would not be found in summary statistics that are reported in the, in the, in the trial. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Brian Alper's work because I thought that ECAS-3 reanalysis was one of the best papers I've seen that has conducted a reanalysis, not just on stroke, but just just in general. I thought that was a really, really well done paper. Agreed. Yeah, very well done. All right. So what tool did you use to assess the NINS trial data for risk of selection bias? Because it would be that selection bias which would have uh, caused the error in randomization. Well, we used the Cochrane tool, and I think it's a very good tool, the risk of bias 2 tool. But I would mention there are some uh, potential issues with it that led us to want to do more with, with the trial data specifically. One of them is the inter-rater reliability of the, the Cochrane tool. So um, there is some evidence on this, and there was just a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology about this, that you know, if I filled out the tool and you filled out the, and you filled out the tool and a, a, a stroke doctor who is super pro-TPA filled out the tool, we might actually come up with different results. So one way we tried to overcome that 
was we directly quoted from the trial as well as the product licensing application and linked those quotes to the Cochrane guidance. I'm not saying that it overcomes it completely, but that's one way it, you can try to overcome that is directly quoting the trial and information from the licensing application. The other one is, uh, I think the larger weakness is it's reliant on the self-reporting of the trials. So if you think about this, it's almost kind of circular in that if you believe that there's a high risk of selection bias, but then the trial reports no information on the necessary information to fill out the tool, you run into a situation where it's going to be mostly unknown. And so I think that's really a concern is that uh, with trials that are being evaluated for selection bias, sometimes the trials, even though there's you know the consort statement and grade recommendations, some trials specifically don't simply report enough to grade or judge the risk of selection bias. Well, you've mentioned the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool, the ROB. Can you walk us through that tool and address the errors arising from the randomization process? There's three um, major components to it. One of them is random sequence generation. And so the, really the purpose of this uh, portion of the tool is to primarily identify trials that use kind of pseudo-randomization techniques. So if you're a trial that did, for example, every other day randomization or something like that, um, that would be an example of a pseudo-randomization technique. And that's really, again, dependent on reporting. The second one is allocation concealment, which... I know Stefan feels very strongly about this, and I think he's probably right, that this would be the principal mechanism by which selection bias occurs or failure of allocation concealment. Ken Schultz's actually landmark paper, interestingly enough, came out just three to four months after the NIN study, which I thought was kind of ironic. But it was about um, how often allocation concealment subversion occurs, and he compared trials that had adequate allocation concealment to inadequate just by self-reporting and you can actually see different in treatment effects. It's very, very important. And then the last component would be baseline balance. And this one's the hardest because you could have baseline imbalances, again, due to chance or a not due to chance. And so that requires you know, some um, justification, in my mind, from the trial data itself to prove one or the other. Well, then you went on and did four sensitivity analyses. And they were based on the randomization process using the individual participant level data. Can you briefly explain what those four analyses were? Sure. The first two were regarding the, the integrity of the randomization process. And there's two things we, we evaluated. One of them, as I mentioned before, the principal purpose of this permuted block design, and I'm going to use the word again, is to cosmetically, because it's not random, it deviates from randomness, is to cosmetically force um, an equal number of participants in both arms within each unique stratum. And then the second uh, area of randomization that we can test is that rule that investigators were supposed to maintain a no greater than uh, three difference of participants that were enrolled in the zero to 90 minute stratum compared to the 91 to 180 minute stratum. And then based on the integrity of randomization or the process, can we prove or disprove that there's evidence of non-random allocation? And so we took advantage of that subjective CT scan rule to look for baseline imbalance within that rule, um, baseline imbalances and TC scans uh, within the stratum. And um, the last one, again, was to look at, you know, at the end of the study, there's this huge difference in 
their reported effect size from the 9180 minute stratum compared to the 090 minute stratum. And there's the important point there is that if you think about it, um, those should be separate from a randomization standpoint. And it also counters the, the hypothesis of the authors that the earlier treatment time window should do, should do better. And so that was, the, that was the basis for the sensitivity analysis, the first two being judge the integrity of randomization, and the second two being um, we're looking for evidence. Is, is there evidence of non-random allocation or not? And what did you do to assess the potential effects of baseline imbalances? Because we've we've heard, and you know, they've been reported before that there were baseline imbalances between the two groups. Well, we didn't use anything too different than the Ingalls or the Annals of Emergency Medicine reanalysis. We used logistic regression, but a big difference is that we chose our variables based on the randomization process. So there, it was not a random picking of variables. Because the worry there is always you're, you're biasing the model to prove your point. So we only picked variables that were imbalanced within unique stratum and were also important prognostic factors for stroke outcomes. Well, that's what you did, the methods section, my favorite section of a paper. Let's get to the results. What did you find? Well, um, we assumed that the allocation sequence was random, even though there's not specific wording of this. That's what the Cochrane guidance says, is that if it's published in a good journal, for example, you should just assume that it's random sequence. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that's what the Cochrane guidance recommends. And specifically, there's no writing of a non-random sequence generation. So we rewrote that a uh, lower risk of bias. And then we did feel that, according to the guidance, that allocation was compromised and there's one principal mechanism was the use of envelopes. And going back to Schultz's paper, he specifically noted that trials with failure of allocation concealment were using envelopes, which are, as expected, very prone to tampering. And another important point is that, so we found a total of 16 unblinded envelopes. Eight of them had documented reasons and eight of them did not. So the one way you could look at this is saying, well, there's only eight envelopes. Why can't you just analyze or truncate those people who had failed allocation? But it's really about first the method of allocation concealment, because you don't know how many other envelopes, for example, were not found to be tampered with. And the second important, and the most important point rather, is that all the envelopes are unblinded for reasons that were expected and unexpected. Those change the ability to guess future allocations by a lot. And that's been proven by the work of Vance Berger is that it's not just some were open for safety and some were not. It, it changes the ability to predict future allocations. And there's overwhelming amount of evidence for this. And then there's some other things that make allocation concealments more suspect. Um, one of them is regarding, you know, if you've reconstituted alteplase, it froths when you swirl it. And so there would need to be a way for investigators to mimic this um, using placebo. In a modern stroke study, for example, in the prison study, they actually list the ingredients, uh, which would be like arginine, phosphoric acid, and polysorbate. But in older studies, it's not known whether they knew that or not. And so that would be kind of a, another mechanism of concern where allocation concealment could fail. And then the last one um, was regarding the baseline differences between the groups. And, and same thing, we felt like this would be a higher risk of bias. Not only do you have a situation where you know, you have baseline imbalances, there's 
only favoritism towards alts plays. We weren't able to identify one baseline imbalance um, in which was in the opposite direction, which favors non-random occurrence. So you did these four sensitivity analyses. What did you discover with those four sensitivity analyses? Well, the first two that were uh, meant to judge the integrity of randomization, we found that this permeated block system absolutely fails in 11 of 16 stratum. Um, again, the, the entire life cycle of this thing is to force an equal number of allocations, and you have it failing in 11 of 16 stratum. And in three of the centers out of eight, um, their pre-specified restriction on randomization also failed such that uh, there was greater than or equal to three participants difference in the zero to 90 minute stratum compared to the 91 to 180 minute stratum. And then the other two, I think is the meat of the paper, the meat of the results rather, is that there's just very, very compelling evidence of non-random allocation. When you look at baseline imbalances from these previous randomization criterion, Um, in the case of the CT scan results, uh, we found problems in three unique stratum for four total baseline imbalances. And in the 91 to 180 minute stratum, again, four baseline imbalances, all prognostic variables for stroke outcomes, all favoring all to place, you know, the chance of all that happening randomly is just remarkably low. So uh, that, that, those were kind of the major results of the four sensitivity analysis. So that you found eight imbalances in total and all eight of them favored the TPA group? Yes. Yeah. All eight. Uh, there was not one imbalance in any of the stratum that we found that favored uh, the placebo arm. Well, then you took this and adjusted for these differences found in the sensitivity analysis. How did they, that impact the results? Well, they shouldn't impact the results per se. What I would say is is that the next step is that you've, you've identified randomization errors is, is kind of showing evidence that it's meaningful. So if, for example, now we, you know, as um, physicians know, for example, that these variables are prognostically associated with stroke, but one might argue, well, how do you know that this isn't that red sock variable? You know, how are you saying that it is a prognostic variable? Because um, you don't want to confirm that using your own data. That's kind of like circular logical thinking as well. And so the way you can do that is to see if the effect sizes, um, when you adjust for these variables that we think are important and are important based on prior data, if you adjust for them, do you see a change in the results or are these variables, are we getting overly conclusive about them and is it that red sack variable? And so we performed adjustments in uh, each of the individual time stratum. I think the zero to 90 minute time stratum for me was a really, really important finding because we did a sensitivity analysis where we just, we adjusted for just the CT scan findings. Uh, so loss of gray white differentiation and then any abnormal CT scan finding and two of the four original results uh, turn out to be non-significant after that adjustment. We then repeated it because in the data dictionary um, it's not clear whether loss of gray-white differentiation is already inclusive in that any abnormal CT scan finding variable. So this time we adjusted for just one variable com- in comparison to the prior analyses that had many, many variables. So we just adjusted for one variable in the 0 to 90-minute stratum and exact same results. You have two out of the four endpoints being now neutral. I think that was a really, really compelling thing for me. 
And then in the 9180 minute stratum, we adjusted for all the variables that were, were found to have baseline differences in those unique stratum. And same thing, you end up finding that half the results are neutral. So in total, after these adjustments, three out of these seven originally positive findings were non-significant, and a total of four out of eight then at the end are, are non-significant. One point, you know, I didn't adjust for multiple hypothesis testing. Uh, we did that to stay consistent with what the original trial authors do. But if you were to do a Bonferroni correction, um, you would be left with one out of eight. But again, since the original authors didn't report that, we didn't want to feel like we were uh, biasing the conclusions or the results one way or the, or the other. I would just add that, you know, the, the finding that four out of eight end up being non-significant is super interesting because it is, it is consistent with a lot of the thrombolytic for stroke literature where you see this phenomenon that was first described as endpoint wobble, where the, the, the disability endpoints are actually quite closely matched, but you have a situation where some of the endpoints are non-significant and some of them are significant. So there's a couple possibilities of why that might be the case. Um, and I think there's two of them that stick out is the interrater reliability of the endpoints is not the same. And then you have this problem of missing data imputation. So with the, the MRS score is the easiest where, you know, you're going to find papers that say the interrater reliability of the MRS score is really good and really bad, but that kind of misses the point. We should be most interested in is what's the interrater reliability at the cutoff point of a good and a bad outcome, which is one and two in a lot of these studies. And not surprisingly, uh, that's exactly where the interrater reliability is the lowest, exactly where that cutoff is. And that creates a, a really big problem. And then the other area where there's th that can explain this endpoint wobble phenomenon is missing data imputation, which is not distinguished in even our own uh, trial data or in the publications where um, authors have a lot of flexibility here to impute missing values. And so you could run into a situation, for example, where certain endpoint values are missing and imputed by authors and others are not. And those would be my best guesses as to why you kind of have this endpoint wobble phenomenon. You see it in ECAS 3, for example, even if you look at just the original publication where certain endpoints are positive and certain are non-significant. And then IST 3, of course, would be the famous example where the primary endpoint is neutral and um, an ordinal analysis is, is claimed to be positive. If anybody's interested in, in that specific uh, endpoint wobble, I, I would refer to Pitch Mandava's work on um, the interrater agreement, how that changes with an ordinal analysis, uh, which assumes that the error in the measurement is the same across the scale. And that, of course, is not true. Well, let's discuss your results. Why is unbiased randomization so important? And that seems like a over-obvious question, like, why is randomization important? And why should it be unbiased? But we'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I kind of alluded to this before, but I think it is super important that you absolutely cannot replicate covariate balance from unbiased randomization. And I feel quite strongly about that. Uh, and if you think of other examples of clinical trials, you know, the PREDIMED study is a great example where very minor errors in randomization uh, were taken so seriously that the authors pulled the paper and then republished it. Those were, those were tiny little errors compared to what we've just described in NINs. Um, so I only wonder what the reaction to this is going to be, but it's, it's, it's very hard to, quote, correct for randomization. In that study, it's, it was massive, so they were able to just restrict the analysis. 
But when you're talking about a, a trial of only 624 patients, I would be hard-pressed to believe that this is something that you can, quote, come back from and reanalyze. Well, what points do you want to highlight from your discussion of the paper? Well, I think the most important one and the most objective finding from the paper is that there's, again, very, very compelling evidence that the baseline imbalances were due to faulty randomization and not due to random chance. It's not just from identification of randomization errors, but it's based on imbalances on the trial's own criterion that could have been used advantageously by investigators. It's also interesting to me that this this fits really nicely with Cochrane's you know, original risk of bias assessment, which was high risk. I would just highlight a couple of other interesting things that, you know, we found. One of them was regarding the the crossover ratio, which was a really astounding piece of information for me. So the crossover ratio was 21 to 1, such that 21 participants who should have received uh, Altiplase received placebo and only one in the opposite direction. So if you think about this, again, under this permeated block design system, um, there should be a 50-50 chance of a crossover if they're not allowed. That's like doing 22 coin flips and saying you've landed on 21 heads by random chance. That's a point, you know, 0.0005% chance of happening. And it's just so remarkably low that um, I think it's a very compelling evidence that it's non-random. And by the way, uh, it was enough, that single data point was enough for um, Vansberger to include the NIN study as an example study of selection bias in his book, Selection Bias and Covariate Balance. The other thing I thought was really interesting is that, you know, you have this very unusual crossover ratio. Um, in the original trial, the authors write they performed an intention to treat analysis, and that was found to be not true by the FDA. They actually... They actually analyze these patients as treated, which I think deviates from best practice. I thought the comparison to Atlantis-B was also very interesting because if you line up the study protocols side by side, it's essentially the same study with two important differences. One of them is that the time window, of course, is different in Atlantis-B. And then also, Atlantis-B didn't have that truncation and randomization regarding time, the time truncation. And so remember, you're, you're going to hear that and this is written also in editorials that the reason Atlantis B is an, a negative or neutral study is because of the time window. That's the principal argument. But in fact, if you compare how the 91 to 180 minute arm did in NINs compared to Atlantis B, there's a non-significant difference. It's about three and a half percent. If you compare the placebo arms of Atlantis B compared to NINs, it's a huge difference, significant 15% difference. So it, it's really not explained. How is it a trial going on at the same time? How does their placebo arm do 15% better? Even if you look at, look at it as a ratio of the relative rate, I mean, it's just, it's not explained how that placebo response is so different. You know, when I originally read this study, one of the things that stood out to me was uh, the effect size difference in the 0 to 90 minute arm compared to 91 to 180 minute arm. Remember, the premise uh, is that earlier treatment is better. And therefore, there isn't one mention about this in the in the discussion that the 91 to 180 minute arm does much, much better than the zero to 90 minute stratum. But, you know, it's because there are baseline differences between the groups. And um, that was, I thought, kind of striking that it's never really been fully, an alternative, for example, has never really been proposed as to why the 91 to 180 minute arm and ends does so much better than the zero to 90 minute arm. And then there's a couple 
just one other you know, super interesting fact. I'm not claiming that this proves anything, but this is regarding the blood pressure data. And so when we looked at the blood pressure variable, I mean, it really raised some red flags. It doesn't look like a normal distributed variable. There's lots of missing values. And then there's lots of repeating values, which is a big, again, a big red flag when you have that many repeating values. So the first thing we did was look back to see what other reanalysis authors had did. And in the English reanalysis, there's actually a small paragraph in there. And they allude, and they say they also found the same thing, that the variable looked corrupted, they threw it out, and they allude to this thing about non-study physicians. So we went back to the TPA, the full, the full committee report, and they further explained that there was nurses from the drug sponsor there um, responsible for data collection. And I just thought the whole thing was, again, it's just an interesting perhaps coincidence that the whole premise of the paper is that allocation concealment fails at centers randomizing patients. And oh, by the way, there are nurses from the, the drug sponsor present at these sites, you know, responsible for data collection. I thought it was just a very inter- interesting coincidence. Well, we don't want to go too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole here, Ravi. So I'm just going to pull back. Agreed. <laughs> All right. Uh, every paper has some limitations, every study. So what do you think the limitations were to your study? I think the big one is is not having access to their randomization schedule because you could, for example, find that the errors were due to overstratification, um, which means they they picked sixteen strata, for example, could have been too many for the sample size. But unfortunately, you can't really figure that out without randomization schedule. And then you know this is one of David Torgerson's idea was you know you should perform a true intention to treat analysis if you have the randomization schedule, because that would be a very, very compelling evidence that not only is there randomization subversion, but if it looks purposeful, um, you, you perhaps could take it that next step. But we, I would say that's the limitation is we didn't have the, the randomization schedule. So what conclusions did you draw from your assessment of the NINS trial? Well, I would say for me, there's very compelling evidence of selection bias. Um, if you look at the burden that's been placed at accusing other trials of selection bias, it's far lower. And, and I think that's the most important conclusion is that it would take a pretty significant amount of evidence to kind of sway me on my conclusion here that there's, there's evidence of selection bias in the trial. So what does this high risk of selection bias do to your certainty about the NINS data? Well, I would say... It should be treated the same as other data sets with high risk of selection bias. And that is, it should be treated as an observational, non-experimental data set, um, just like any other data set with a high risk of selection bias should be treated. Wow. So you're, you would conclude the imbalances seen in NINs were not due to noise in the data, but rather randomization error, which can bias the results and move us away from the quote unquote truth which I define as the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that effect size. So the results are, are fuzzier and less certain. Absolutely. And I think, again, uh, a real important point is that you can't simply just say we're going to reanalyze the data again and say that the results stand as the way they are because the, the actual data is subject to that bias already. So it, it can't be overcome with analysis um, I think there is an overwhelming number of historical examples that would support this. So this error impacts the magnitude of the effect size. So it's likely not a 13% absolute benefit as reported in NINs. 
And then this error in randomization would be passed along into any systematic review and meta-analysis done on this topic, even if it included that individual patient data set. You can't control for this type of error in randomization. You know, a meta-analysis is an observational study designed by nature, and that's very important, even in individual patient data meta-analysis. And as with all observational data analysis, it includes the individual biases in, in the individual studies. And this is a really, really important and overlooked point is depending on the relative weight or the sample sizes, the biases can be augmented greatly in this, the pooled effect. This is not some vague kind of conceptual thing. You can actually quantify this. Um, I think the, the best method to do that was popularized by the York Clinical Trials Group, um, Amy Hicks uh, and David Torgerson and, and the rest of them. And, you know, I think that information will be out in six months, but this isn't some vague thing where you say that there's selection bias in one study and therefore it can be overcome by aggregating that data. It, it absolutely can overcome the problems in individual trials. I would also add from a Cochrane standpoint, the chapter on individual patient data meta-analysis is like the very last chapter. It's somewhere in the 500s in the page, whereas the rest of the handbook is about making sure the integrity of the trials that are involved. Um, I think meta-analyses can be a very dangerous game. I think if you look at COVID for the last two years, there's just lots and lots and lots of examples of this where you're trying to pull something out of nothing and, and the end result can be pretty bad. So when it comes to systematic reviews and meta-analyses, you have to watch out for GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. The systematic review can only be as good as the quality of the included trials. And the quality of the included trials has to incorporate those biases. And those biases can be compounded by doing a meta-analysis. And so you can take a little bit of bias, a little bit of bias, a little bit of bias, and then it can all add up into this systematic review meta-analysis. And it can crank out a number giving you this point estimate with a with a p-value that goes down to 0. 0.000 something. And it gives this illusion of certainty without considering the problems of the included studies and the nuances and the, the, the issues and limitations within the primary literature. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, it is. it can be a very dangerous study design in the improper hands. And again, I think, I hope we learned this lesson during COVID, but having just recovered from COVID and having all the time to read these things, it's a lot of these early therapeutics. You know, if you go back to like February 2020, where every, lots of authors were saying we should be using all these different therapeutics that haven't panned out later, were based on meta-analyses. There's nothing that stops you from pushing enter on your statistical package or writing code that forces the trials to spit out a result. That requires judgment of the individual studies. So there's been calls by multiple individuals, author groups, uh, even organizations for more randomized control trials to help sort this out because we don't have a really good, clear idea about the efficacy of TPA for acute ischemic stroke. Yet those convinced of its efficacy uh, will say that it would be unethical to perform such a randomized control trial due to a lack of equipoise. How do you respond to that argument? 
Well, I'd be far more concerned about the ethics of treating patients under false pretenses. And for me, having just finished um, reviewing this trial, there's very compelling evidence that the trial was subject to bias, specifically selection bias. I would add that likely uh, attrition bias as well. And and so I think it that's a weak argument. I mean, I think it would be far more unethical to treat patients based off of effect sizes that are perhaps either biased or non-existent. You know, reading the history of this in, in the editorial uh, that was criticizing Hoffman's reanalysis, one of the authors alluded to ECAS-3 and basically said that, well, we can start ignoring the problems in NINs because now we have another study that supports the individual the hypothesis. But of course, you know, now we know that's probably not true. Um, I feel quite similarly about the ALPA reanalysis. I did ask those authors, by the way, why they, did, why they didn't perform stratum-specific or center-specific reanalyses like we did. And the drug sponsor actually took out the center ID variable. So I think we ought to take the history of medicine a lot more seriously. I'll even settle and say, why don't the IPD meta-analysis authors, the 25 or so of them, and dare I say, all have compelling interests with the drug manufacturer, why don't they let one other person review the data? You know, that was the original ask by Roger Shinton and Richard Thompson when this was reviewed overseas. And that was actually the original ask. It was just, why doesn't one other person get a chance to look at this data? Look how much we found in NINs. Look how much we found in ECAS-3. Is it possible that, you know, there's some additional bias? And um, I, I can tell you that I'd be most concerned about uh, missing outcomes data. There's there's a lot of evidence there that the way the authors are using missing outcome data is very worrisome from a bias analytical standpoint. And the, the last point I want to make is um, we ought to be serious about our historical past with medicine in which we've done really, really terrible things um, in neurology and probably emergency medicine uh, based on this unfettered kind of enthusiasm and lack of critical appraisal, it's it's gotten us and our patients into trouble before, and that would be um, something I'm deeply concerned about. Yeah, these original trials get put into systematic reviews, and then they get put into clinical practice guidelines, and I don't think people really understand the term guideline. They're there to guide our care. They're not there to dictate our care and replace our clinical judgment. But it's often used as a hammer. You know, get with the guidelines. You got to follow the guidelines. And if you go back to the primary literature and you go, well, you know, the primary literature isn't as strong as maybe the guidelines suggest. So my next question would be, how do you think we should apply your paper clinically? What should we do with it? Well, I'll speak from the perspective of somebody in the U.S. that, you know, clinical practice is influenced by lots of different external factors. You know, these you mentioned quality metric, for, for examples. Uh, there's regulatory burdens. There's medical legal concerns. There's financial concerns. And then lastly, there's the evidence. And so even if you give a glowing consent that's re- recommended by, you know, National Practice Guidelines, the American Heart Association, I don't think there's anything that prevents individual physicians from giving it informed consent with additional information based on your expertise and in your interpretation of the literature. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And so that's how I would apply my you know, paper or results clinically. So what's, what's the bottom line then here? 
I would say that I'm very skeptical about the results of the NIN study and just in thrombolytic studies for stroke in general. So do you have any final thoughts then? I would emphasize that, you know, the history of medicine informs us that we ought not to be so enthusiastic and it can be dangerous, even if something that's historically rooted to be accepted. Well, thank you, Ravi, uh, very much for coming on the SGEM and discussing your study, revealing the NINS trial had a high risk of selection bias. Thanks for having me, Ken. I really enjoyed the conversation. You mentioned something about missing outcome data, and you published another paper in June 2022 about missing outcome data on stroke trials. And so I'm going to invite you back for Ravi Part 2 on uh, stroke trials. Well, I think your listeners might be sick of listening to me by now, but I'm always happy to talk about um, my research. Well, the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media so patients get the best care based on the best evidence. But before we go, Ravi, I need you to read the SGM tagline. Sure, Ken. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.